Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you that your word is holy and inspired. It's God-breathed. Lord, I need to hear from you tonight. Lord, anoint your word. Put it forward before us that we can feast on your truth, Lord, as we see this life of David, a man like any other man, Lord, just as you've got your sons and daughters here, as we go through the difficulties of this life, the conflict, but yet joy. Lord, we need you. Jesus, your presence, your love, show us in a mirror, Lord. Show us our hearts. Because, Lord, we desire to have a heart after you, Jesus. Give us that heart if we don't, Lord. We just thank you for your unending love and your promises, Lord. Never faltering, never failing. We pray all this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, the true King of kings. And all God's people pray. Amen. Chapter 26, verse 1, if you'll read with me. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakiah, opposite of Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph. What short memory Saul has. Just back to chapter 24. You can look back there, verses 16 through 22. It said, So when I was David finished speaking these words, Saul that Saul said, is this the voice of my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded... He went through this whole experience, not repentance, but sorrow. And here he is again. He, he promised that he wouldn't come back after him. He, he gave him his word. He said, he said, go, I will not pursue you anymore. He just made him in verse 21 swear that he wouldn't cut off his descendants in the future. That was all Saul had asked of David. And now in verse 2, a, you know, a couple chapters later, we see Saul arose and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men. This is the special forces, okay? For one man, one man, 3,000 men to go after one man, and the 600 if you want to be accurate because he had other men with him, but one man with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So just think about that, 3,000 versus 600. And not just any 3,000, but the special forces. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite of Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. Here we go again. David therefore sent out spies. Isn't that interesting? Saul didn't know where to find David, but David knew where Saul was because one was being led by the Lord. And the other, again, was trying to micromanage God. So David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. He knew his whereabouts, where he was going in and going out that way. I want you to just think it's been some 10 years. David has not had a place that he can call his home. David has not had a place where he could rest his head as he would travel as a vagabond between the wildernesses and all through the different territories. And yet, throughout all that experience, he knew where Saul was. In my heart of hearts, I believe he was praying for Saul. I believe he was praying for repentance for Saul. Because I do believe he loved him. He loved him. 
So he sent out spies again, understanding that Saul had indeed come in. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, that's what his name means, Abba, Ab, right, in the Hebrew, father, Ner, you know, I don't really particularly find that interesting. You know, I name my kid, hey, this is my dad, you know, this is the son of Ner, just, I, I find that interesting, I mean... We couldn't, we couldn't come, you know, there was nothing a little bit more creative back then. They didn't have the book of names back then, you know, I don't know. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 5. So David arose and came to the place where Saul encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, and that's an interesting term, good translation in the New King James compared to the King James the idea of trenches, with the people encamped all around. And the idea at that time, and it's really no different than any type of military um, excursion, the commander or those that are of senior officer, in this case, you know, the king, would be in the middle or the center. And think of it as a ring that would be put around you. And eventually what you would do, you'd have your generals, Next to the king, you'd have Abner there. You'd kind of work your way out. And as you got your way out, you 3,000 men, okay, picture this, you'd eventually get out to the infantry and to the different area all around. So to get to Saul, think about what you'd have to go through. You begin with the infantry, then you kind of work your way up, and then you know, the next thing you know, you're, you're to the you know, generals, and then finally you have to go through all that just to get to Saul. 3,000 men, and he's in the middle of this encampment here. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. You know, have spear, will travel. This guy moves everywhere with the spear. Now, this is very familiar to David. He's had it thrusted towards his head. How many times? At least twice, right? And now Saul has it literally right in the ground next to his head where he's encamped in the middle of this area, right? And it's struck in the ground. And it just, you know... You can't help but think, where's his strength? Where's his trust? Is it in his people? Is it in his weapon? It certainly wasn't in the God of Israel. And Abner and all the people lay around him, right? You think back to 1 Samuel 24.4, right? For a minute, look back there with me. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Do you remember that? He was close. He had that opportunity. Now we find this second time here. Verse 8, Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Do you remember in chapter 24 when his counselors were around him? What were they telling him? Do you remember? Kill him, David. Kill him. What are you waiting for? God has given you this. And we talked about it last week. Just because it looks like a divine appointment, it smells like a divine appointment, Satan can open doors too. That doesn't mean we need to test the spirits as Scripture teaches us. We need to hear from the Lord, wait on the Lord like that. Had David taken things into his own hands, he would have regretted it the rest of his life. 
But praise God. He didn't listen to the counsel of men. He listened to the one true God. You see, everyone has a master. Who's your master? You can't serve two. You'll hate one and love the other, Jesus told us. Everybody's following someone or something. You got to make your calling and election sure. Well, here's David. Now he's in this circumstance where Joah, okay, well, going back, if you look at Abishai and you go back and look at the, he's basically his nephew, it's the uncle, so there's family relationship there. It's not just a pure stranger, it's not just a counselor that way. This is somebody that would have had regard or uh, relationship into David's life. And Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy to your hand this day. You don't think David was tempted by that? You don't think David was listening and thinking, boy, I can end this right now. Ten years. Remember, ten years as a vagabond, as a sojourner, just wandering. Do you ever get to the point where, well, I know you do, because it's pandemic days, right? Do we ever get to the point where we're enough, enough? Wherever you lie on that, wherever you fall on that equation, the idea is enough. Some people, I want to I be able to travel. I want to be able to go. I want to be able to see my loved ones, my friends. I want to, I want my normal, whatever that was. What will you do to get it? Well, He's listening to Abishai right now, and this is sounding pretty attractive. He can end up back in Israel where he wants to be, back with his wife, Michael. Remember, she's been given to another, but maybe things can be fixed again. I mean, don't think those things aren't running through his head. Read the Psalms. This is real. This is a real account. It's a real man with real feelings, real temptations. What do we do? Do we follow our emotions? Are we guided by our emotions? Or do we recognize that our emotions can betray us? Our feelings can betray us. Amen? It's a good word. We need to pay attention to this because I assure you, if you're a Christian more than a day, there will come a point in your life where you will enter temptation. You will have a situation where you have to make a decision and you're going to follow the flesh or the spirit because they're constantly at war. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. They war against each other. That war was being played out right here on this page. This day. Now therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. He says, I'll take care of it in one blow. I assure you. And he says, David, you don't even have to do it. Now, this is interesting because we're going to read that when David pushes back and says, absolutely not, how dare we touch God's anointed? He says, grab the spear. But pay attention who actually grabs the spear. Because David knows that if Abishai would have touched that spear, would he have done exactly what he said right here? Sometimes it's good to remove ourselves from temptation. 
if there's a computer in the house and you're looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at on the computer, turn the computer off. Move the computer out of the room. Figure it out. But don't let it stand there, just taunting you and tempting you. A little good old-fashioned common sense goes a long way. Spiritual 2020. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Do you remember that? What do you mean the Lord's anointed? Turn back to chapter 10, let's, lest we forget. Because the Spirit of God has left Samuel. Lest we forget, Lord, chapter 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, It is not because the Lord has anointed your commander over his inheritance. He's saying, Is it not? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men. And he goes on and talks about, but what's he saying here? That flask of oil, when it was being poured upon his head, he was being anointed. It's God's anointed. You know, something that's interesting in the New Testament, there's a passage in Scripture that says the calling of God is irrevocable. I encourage you to be Bereans and go back and study that. What does that mean? The calling of God is irrevocable. Certainly there was another spirit that had come upon Saul by this point, right? And God had allowed it. We know it was a demonic spirit, not a spirit from God that's in any way evil. There's no such thing. It's impossible. For God is light, and light cannot coexist with darkness. But David recognized that this was the one that Samuel anointed per God's command, per God's plan, per God's direction. And David yields to a sovereign God, even if it doesn't suit him, even if it doesn't make sense to him. Because God had already anointed David. God had already turned around and said, you're going to be king. You don't think all of that's running through his head? This is my time. I ask you all here tonight, if you were in that situation, what would you do? Please look at the word and underline it. Against the Lord's anointed and be what? Guiltless. Without guilt. That that's the key to everything. That tells us where it's coming from. Who brings guilt? There's two different things, right? We have condemnation and we have correction. Which category does that fall in? Right? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God is not the author of condemnation. God is the author of conviction. He's not the author of guilt. So what is David trying to tell Abishai? He's saying, we, we're going to be protected. We're protected by not walking into this because we're staying in the will of God. Because when we're not in the will of God, we're easily picked off or ensnared by the enemy, by Satan himself. He makes that declaration here by, by being very clear, guiltless, without guilt. David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him. He, he learned that as Nabal, and he saw that play out before him. Faith builds upon faith and trust. Or his day shall come to die. Or 
he shall go out to battle and perish. He's saying, or, or, the point is, is God's got it, and God's going to handle it, right? Hold your finger here. Please turn to Romans chapter 12. Please. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Please look at verse 17 with me. God tells us through the Apostle Paul, through direct inspiration, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it, rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will keep coals of fire upon his head. Speaking of a proverb, Proverbs 25. Do not be overcome by evil. And I think this is the key. And, and Paul understood this. Do not be overcome with evil. But what? Overcome evil with good. Do not, what, what did he say again? Be guiltless. I like that. I like that. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. Why? Because Saul would know when his spear is missing because he travels with it, right? So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head. Notice that. He told Abishai to grab it. Remember I mentioned this? But in verse 12, who took it? David told Abishai, grab the spear and grab the jug of water. But then what does David do? David grabs the spear. Why? Because he knew it would be too much of a temptation for Abishai. So he didn't put Abishai through that. And they got away. Just think about that. 3,000 men. And these two men managed to go all the way to the inner encampment, past the general, past Abner, directly to Saul, without waking a single soul, have an opportunity to do something that would have been out of the will of God. God certainly had already prepared David for this. That situation with Abner and Abigail, do you think that was a required course? That David would learn from that in that experience and realize that when he was placed in this one, that he would know how to behave and how to respond. We see that over and over again in Scripture. We always need to be prayed up. It's like Jesus said to the disciples and the apostles when they were going to the garden right before his crucifixion. He says, can't you stay awake and pray with me? That you don't what? That you don't enter into temptation. That you don't enter into temptation. You don't wait to the moment to pray. You get prayed up before the moment. So you're ready for the battle. David was prepared here. God had prepared David. He had equipped him for everything that David needed to come through this temptation. As it says in the New Testament, you know, that God will, play, God will provide a way out of every temptation. Temptation. 
So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. We see something supernatural here. When you're in the will of God, expect the supernatural. Expect God's leading. Expect God's moving. Be expectant, man. Pray for the rain. We've neutered the church. We've neutered the church today. It grieves my heart because we warm seats so that bodies can fill them. And we call that church. No. That's not... We don't play church and we don't play Christian. These are real things we have to ask the Lord to examine our hearts on. We have to be transparent about these. These are t- I, I go to the Lord constantly, Lord, show me my heart. But Lord, please, I know it's wicked. Protect me from me. Protect me from me. And then expect the supernatural. Expect God to not only lead and show up, but to give you everything you need in that moment to carry out his perfect will. God's not an absentee parent. He always shows up. Verse 13. Now David went out to the other side and stood on top of the hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people, and to Abner, the son of Ner, as we needed that constant reminder, right? That's what his name means. Saying, do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel in such a trusted position this way? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. Kind of like the proof, remember, in chapter 24, verse 1, of Saul's robe. Now he took his spear and the jug of water. You see what what God is telling us here and what we see in the Scripture and what David's trying to make Abner aware of is that David actually cared more about Saul than Abner did because Abner wasn't faithful to watch and stand guard and, and be the watchman. But David was able to go in and had first access to to Saul that way, and he protected him by not letting Abishai take harm against Saul. And was David not more faithful than Abner was? That's what he's saying here, right? David cared more for Saul's life than Abner did. This thing that you have done is not good as the Lord lives. You deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? Often a familiar response from Saul. Now please notice that this is a different response from David. Last time in chapter 24, he said, Is that your, son, is that, is that your voice, my son David? And he said, Father, yes, because he was his father-in-law, right? But now how does he respond to him? David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. No longer speaking to him as a father because now he has given Michael away to another man. 
but speaking with humility, still addressing him as my king. Right here, you see just amazing allegiance, loyalty, love, and just a short chapter or two, we're going to see David flee out of Israel. He's, he's going to go to the land of the Philistines. He's going to go to Ashish, and he's going to go to him, and he's going to call him master. He's going to call this Philistine king him master. How fickle we are. How fickle I am. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is on my hand? He says, consider the facts. In any situation, we should always consider the facts. Right? <laughs> Today, the popular phrase is, what's the science say? Now, therefore... Please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him, and he's going to go on to say, accept, right? Now, what was David doing here? Da David was encouraging Saul to deal with the issue at hand, a carnal and a jealous heart, right? He was in need of what? He was in need of repentance. He says, please consider an offering. But if it is the children of men may they be accursed or may they be cursed before the Lord for they have driven me out this day for sharing the inheritance of the Lord saying, go serve other gods. You know, what he's saying here is that if there's something going on here, it's not my choice. I'm being driven away. I'm being driven out of Israel. I'm being driven away. I can't even go worship. I can't even go and go to the priest. I can't even go and give, you know, an offering unto the Lord, because I've been driven out that way. This is his struggle, right? This is his struggle that he's describing to him. He's being honest. He's being transparent. He's sharing this with Saul. This is my struggle. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea. Do you see that? A flea. You send 3,000 men to pursue a flea. As when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. You, you know, you understand what he's saying there in context? So a partridge. So if you were going to the mountains and you were trying to hunt a partridge, one of the things that they would do is they would gather together, they would come, and then they would do what? They would gather up and they would fly away. He said, that's what you're doing. You're driving me out. As though one would hunt, you're driving me out. As though we we're all coming out to find partridges. You got all these men that would be driving these birds so that they're going to fly into one area so you could shoot them. You could kill them and then eat them, right? He's saying, enough, Saul. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Now, this is interesting. I find this very interesting. He, he's admit before that he's sorry and he's sinned. We've not seen repentance yet, but this is interesting. Please circle this in your Bible. Return. This is it. There's an invitation here. There's an invitation to stay in Israel. I understand some of us are saying, yeah, but Saul, we know he's manic. He said before, hey, let's, you know, I, I'm not going to pursue you anymore. And then here we are again. 
But please notice this with me because directly in chapter 27, we're going to see David's disobedience. It's a very sorrowful situation that we're going to see in chapter 27 here. He's going to flee Israel altogether. But he had a choice. God opened a door here. He said, return, my son David. For I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. That's interesting. Saul recognized that he was beaten. Did you see that? That's what he's sorry about. This isn't repentance of sin because of what I've done. Saul was beaten and he was played the fool. Do you understand? Do you see what he's upset about here? But also admitting. He says, I erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, here's the king's spear. Notice he doesn't answer him and say, okay, Saul, I'll come back under these conditions, or, okay, Saul, I, I, I want to be restored. Well, well, yeah, he, he just totally ignores the, the return, my son, return. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I like this. When he says repay every man, it reminded me of Psalm 18. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 18 in your Bibles, please. Look at uh, verse 20, if you wouldn't mind with me. Psalm 18, verse 20. This has been dated and discusses this was the same time that, again, he was pursued, escaped, and he's fleeing to the, you know, to the uh, Philippine, or the Philipp, uh, Philistines, excuse me, Achish to be specific. Look at verse 20. The Lord reward me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, trusting in God's plan during a crisis, for all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Please underline that. My iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you shall show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you shall show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you shall show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but I, or but will bring down haughty looks. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Who's the one that brings the light? That's right. It's a lamp into our feet, right? You, you, you know that's a light into our path, right? You, you know the passages in Psalm. Just think about what he's saying there. 
God's promise and his provisions and his protection and his desire and design, how he does go before us that way. That's a great encouragement to me in the moment of a crisis, in the moment of the most difficult situation, to watch God's faithfulness. You ever been in situations like that? Where you didn't know how you were going to get out of it? You didn't know what you were going to do? Maybe it was a mortgage payment. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was something health-related. And all you were hearing was the bad news and the darkness and just the evil and wicked that was surrounding you, and it just, you couldn't escape it, you know? Maybe Job's counselors were around you. And then God so faithfully enlightens. He brings his beautiful light, and you can see again. And you know that God's in control, and everything's going to be all right according to God's plan and term, and you begin to understand your place in all of it as a servant, as a beloved, as a child of God. And it all starts to make sense again. It's not that your circumstance changed necessarily in that moment, did it? But your understanding of your place and the sovereign God and the grace, it's everything. It changes everything. He says, may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you to my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And it's the, the principle we find even in Matthew chapter 7. I'll turn there quickly. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. It's the same principle that Jesus taught us. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Good word. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in your eyes, in the eyes of the Lord. That's the Jesus principle there, right? He's taught us that. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Mercy begets mercy. Mercy produces blessing, and in return, thanksgiving. It, it flows in a circle that way. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son. Do you see that? The mercy that was bestowed now follows and results in blessing. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now, as we go into chapter 7, please don't forget that what David is still dealing with is really back to verse 19. You remember when he was talking about how he can't go to worship, how he hasn't had that opportunity, right? That, that it was the children of Israel that actually cursed him in that way before the Lord because they, they've driven him out. And they don't allow him to share even in his inheritance of the land that God had given him. They don't even let him have that, you know, saying, go serve other gods. He says, how is this good? So he's still dealing with this, right? He's still trying to process this. And what does he do? Where is, I mean, he just, we just saw this beautiful example of where he comes back and shows mercy, receives a blessing. There's thanksgiving in his heart, certainly, from this. But then immediately thereafter, chapter 27, one of the most... 
Huh. Difficult chapters as we read it to see in just one chapter this man's countenance change so abruptly. Because look what he says in verse 1. And David said in his heart. Do you see that? He allowed what was going on in verse 19 to penetrate his heart. He wasn't, he wasn't bringing his thoughts to God and allowing Jesus to take them captive and casting them out in the name of Jesus Christ. He was allowing those thoughts to consume him, to be in the heart, begin to take root. Look what he's saying. Now I shall perish someday? Has God not anointed this man to be king? Do you realize that you're here tonight? You're invincible when you're in the will of God. That's what I meant earlier when I say, you know, I, I never forgot what David Jeremiah said one time. He, so adamantly, he was on a plane. He traveled. I, I can relate. I, I traveled planes, trains, and automobiles for 15 years or 14 years working for Microsoft. Every city, in and out, you know, never once. Just fly, do your thing, right? David Jeremiah was doing the same thing. He got on the plane but now the Lord had called him into ministry. Now he was serving the Lord. He gets on a plane to go to a conference. He was invited to preach at the conference. For the first time ever, the man has a panic attack sitting on the plane before the plane takes off. Because he starts to wonder, what's going to happen to me? And David said in his heart, that's what happened. And when, da when David Jeremiah turned around and realized what was going on, he thought of this very passage, by the way. He thought of this. He turned around and he began to pray. And, he, and the Lord just revealed, he says, Son, when you are in my will, you are invincible in the will of God. And he said, Amen. And then he had a cup of coffee. Because God's sovereign. And it was settled. And it was settled. That's it. And, and friends, I'm going to lay in on something very, very important, which is a good, good thing. When your time is done, assuming the rapture doesn't come first, which it's coming, Amen. you're going to go be with Jesus. Just yesterday, we had a funeral. Our beloved sister Ellen, 90 years old, her casket laid right before us here, room full of people. And I remember looking just directly at him in you know, 1 Corinthians 5.8, absent with the body, present with the Lord. She's not in there. She's not in the box. Let that give you great comfort. Jesus Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. It was proof. You know, for those that are from Missouri and say, show me, I'm from Missouri. Jesus took care of that. He understood. He went the distance. He proved it. God the Father proved it. So that you and I don't ever have to worry about that. So that we aren't walking around and, and, and saying, what happens if I die? What do you mean what happens? You get to go be with Jesus. But we're living in a time where this has been tipped upside down. 
That's because we have years and, you know, people are living to 70. And I mean, do you realize that it was, I think it was, uh, I went back and looked at 1920s, 1930s, somewhere there, maybe even 40s. The average lifespan was 56 years of age. 56 years of age. Do you know at Jesus' time when Jesus walked the earth physically manifested, do you know what the average lifespan was then? 56 years of age. Through almost 19 or 1800 years, the life expectancy was similar. It's not until the last, what, 100 or a little less years that all of a sudden we saw, because of technology and, and, and you know, health and different things, that the life expectancy increased. And now, by the way, it's going back down again. I don't know if you've checked that or look at that on the census. It's going back down. For the first time, our kids in this generation will have less years than our parents for us because it's going back. The question is, is that a blessing? Because with all these years, we've begun to get very comfortable. <laughs> Many of you stayed in a hotel or a motel before. You've traveled, right? When I would go to the hotels, because again, I, I stayed in them all the time, I would use the dressers. And my wife would always say, why are you using the dressers and everything? We're only going to be here. And I said, because it's, I travel so much, it's a sense of home. It's, 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 it's you know, it's tangible. I don't know how else to say it. But I began to think about that. Eternity is a very long time, beyond comprehension, actually. This life is finite and very short. Effectively, what we have begun to do is we have gone and decided to have a holiday. And that holiday is lasting, let's just say, two days. We've brought all our stuff. We've got the kitchen sink. We got the dog. We got it. And we're packing it into the hotel and motel. Like we're staying forever. Like it's not all going to burn. Because I've never seen a U-Haul behind a casket, Right? And the only thing you can take with you to eternity are the things that were done for the kingdom of God. Not for this temporal habitation here that we call terra firma or earth. Are you with me? Yet how much time do we spend thinking about, a, you know, accumulating or gathering these possessions, these material items, all of this stuff. And we've got to buy bigger houses because we get more stuff. We can't even live in flats anymore, like, a, you know, 500 square feet, right? Think about it. When you were kids, you had, if you were fortunate, you know, when the, your older brother or sister got out, you got your own room, even if it was for like a year. And that thing was like an 8 by 10 or maybe a 10 by 10 if you were fortunate. I had an even smaller room than that, I remember. And, and, and man, that was like paradise. I didn't need anything more. I had the big wheel. You heard me talk about that on Sunday. I didn't need any. I got the big wheel. I had the, I was set. But then we get married and we have kids. And next thing you know, we need 2,000 square feet, 2,300 square feet. Some people 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. And then we get this big house and we look around. How did I get into this? I don't know. We, get, we look around and next thing you know, we got to buy more furniture to put in the house. 
Why? Now I shall perish someday at the hand of Saul. What? This is toxic. Our thinking has all, remember Dr. Daniel Berger was here for the mental health conference? He talked about actual medical studies where when they were given a placebo, but positive affirmation or encouragement that they're going to heal or get better, that they did compared to those that thought they were terminal or they were going to die and they could have even been given pharmacia. There's studies like that. Do you know that they have shown that um, antidepressants and anxiety medication, pharmacia like that, that exercise can have just as much effect on the brain as an antidepressant can? Just think about these things. There's so much we don't understand about the brain. Negative thinking, it's toxic. It'll kill you. It will kill you, literally. Stress weakens your immune system. There's nothing better for me. Listen to that. This is David. This is King David. There's nothing better for me that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. That's his, he says, you know what? I'm out of Dodge. I'm going to the land of the Philistines. Didn't he just talk about in 19 how he wanted to worship and how he was being withheld from his own land? And then Saul actually invites him in verse 21 to return. But he doesn't want to deal with that. Instead, he's taking matters. We don't see one area, chapter 27, all the way even into portions of 28. And 29, actually. It'll be some year, at least according to scriptures, that we don't even see David pray. Think about how many times prior chapters to this, David went back and sought the Lord on what he should do. There's nothing like that right here. He doesn't go to God and say, God, is this your will? But also, please notice with me that even though God allows this, God's going to provide for him in this land, even though it's not God's best. How many of us are settling for God's second best? I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in part of Israel. So I, so I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with 600 men who were with him to Ashish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So do you remember who was from Gath? He brought his sword there the first time when he played insane. Do you remember that? When he was faking uh, chapter 21 there, right around verses 10 through 15, if I remember correctly. He turned around and he was faking insanity or, or madness. And uh, the, the, you know, the king of Asia says, get, get out of here. What are you doing? Get out of here. You don't belong here. You know, I'm not taking care of you. I got enough. I got enough crazies on my hand. I'm not taking care of you, right? So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household. So not only do you have 600 men, but you have their wives and children. So what did David do? David doesn't just leave him, lead himself into the situation. He now brings some 1,300 people or more into the same situation of compromise. Out of the will of God. And David with his two wives, 
a gnome, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. I, I just want us to learn from this. Our sin and our doubt affects other people. When you have people that are talking that way, bring a word of encouragement from the word of God. Don't try to reason with the intellect to convince them otherwise. Because if you can persuade them one direction, the enemy can persuade them another. But if you can take the word of God and speak truth, hope, encouragement, that's sustaining. Because then we're arguing with God and not man. Let the word of the Lord speak. My opinion never matters. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Shish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your, and circle this in your Bible, servant, what a low time in David's life, dwell in the royal city with you. He's the servant of a pagan worshiper. What is he saying? He's saying, look, it's okay. You know, we go, we go to stay with family, right? You stay your first week with your, your uh, family, your in-laws. You're, you're having a great time. You're enjoying yourself. Things are good. Two weeks, all right. Three weeks to four weeks, it might be time to rent a summer house, right? It might be time to look at other property to rent another, right? Because you don't want to overstay your what? Welcome, right? Well, I think... <laughs> David is aware of that. I mean, it's okay at first because he's eating everything on the king's table. He's uh, living in the king's city. You know, how many times you got to go out and get water because of the other 1,300 people that are there? After a while, it gets a little old. It can start to rub people the wrong way. So David's smart. He says, no, why don't we find, is there another place in this area that we can live? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. You know, that, that, the idea and the name for that is twisting, Ziklag, the idea in the Hebrew, twisting. It's, it's a fitting place for David because he was wrestling and twisting. Therefore, Ziklag had belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. I call this the silent time of the Psalms. We don't have one single psalm for this one year and four months that David is in Ziklag this way specifically. Certainly we have it for when he's heading there, for when he's leaving, but not while he spent this time. And David and his men went up and raided. Did you catch that? David becomes a bandit. What? When you're not in the will of God, do you see how it becomes a slippery slope and it just keeps going and compromise after compromise after compromise? I mean, he's going to go and he's going to murder men, women, and children. Eventually what's going to happen is Asia's just going to say, where have you been, David? And because Ziklag and, you know, he's going to make his way down, that's right near the, um, the land of Judah of Simeon, where Simeon would have been. 
in that land, that tribe of Simeon, where he would have had possessed that land, they're right up next to that, about 10 miles from it. So he's going to tell Achish that he's going over there and invading and, you know, fighting with the Israelites. And that's going to bring Achish great joy because he's thinking, great, this guy's, he's, he's, he's drawn closer to me. He's becoming more of a trusted advisor, more of a, he's destroying Israel. This is wonderful. But David's lying. What David's doing is he's actually going out and he, he's raiding the, well, we can read it here. The Gershites, the Gerzites, Amalekites, for those nations were inhabitants of the land of old as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. These were all enemies of Israel. And so David's going to, you know, be murdering these. Now, certainly we know that God did say that these men would, you know, be destroyed because of their pagan, you know, God had been long-suffering, they would be destroyed because of their pagan practices and beliefs and that the nation would be given over, specifically the land would be given over to Israel. But this wasn't how God had intended to do it. This was not God's plan. This was David's plan out of fear and compromise. Please see the difference. And this is what happens in our lives too. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive. And again, a very low point. I, I don't think there's words we can put to this. When we think of David, we don't think of him as a bandit. The lowest points in his life, similar to Bathsheba, low point in his life. He's a real man. But he took the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and all the apparel and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? You know, no longer fighting for God anymore, is he? What is he? He's a man of hire for profit. That's what a bandit is. Not fighting for a nation of Israel or state, but a man fighting for profit. Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeremites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. He's lying. David would then, David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, lest they should do what? Inform on us. Saying, thus David did. Do you see what he would do? To cover his lie. Once you start lying, you have to lie and continue to lie, and your lies get bigger to try to cover your lies. And nobody's a perfect liar. I mean, I understand there's habitual liars and even there. But can you, can you imagine living a life like that where you have to constantly lie and then remember every lie you've told so that you're not exposed in the very lie before you. It's, it's got to be tiresome. I, I, it's hard enough to live as you are, or at least for me, to live as I am. I can't imagine living five lives like that because you're lying in all those aspects and capacity. How would you keep it all straight? This is what had to be going on in David's heart, right? He, I mean, maybe now his autobiography should be entitled, I Played the Fool. I don't know. Because he's trying to gain favor with Achish by lying to him. He's more respect, worried about respecting Achish than he is God. Do you see that? He's more worried about what Achish thinks than what God thinks of him at this time. He said, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David saying he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. I'll read two verses and then we'll stop here for tonight. 
Now, it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies. Now, by the way, we don't know how much time goes between chapter 27 and 28. We don't have an idea if it's a day, if it's a year or more. Certainly, it's a period of time. That the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. Now, do you see what happens? Look what his lie has done now. Right? He has to look like he's happy about this. So David said to Achish, surely you know that what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians. He, he's caught up in this web of lies. Nothing, <laughs> nothing can help him but turning to the God of Israel, the great I am. You know, I think the thing we, we'll, we'll stop there for now. I think the thing we learn from this Please don't forget, David is a man after God's own what? Heart. So what I learned from this is that every single human being has the capacity to blow it. I learned that no one has arrived. So as I look through a room left and right, it's not like one of us has arrived. It's all a matter of grace, right? Are you with me? It's grace upon grace upon grace. Because the coolest thing that we're going to read next week, if the Lord should tarry, is he's going to turn around. And I mean, I'll tell you what, I'm praying the Lord doesn't tarry. And we we're raptured out because I can't wait to hear him teach this. Everything I'm missing. But I want you to think about this for a minute. He's going to come back to God. He's at his lowest point ever, ever in his life. At this point, he's in his lowest point ever. And he's going to come back to God. And please notice that God does not rake him over the coals. God receives him right then and there and says, I love you. It's done. You see, that's unconditional love. That's so foreign to so much of humanity today. Because people have had just extraordinary circumstances that are difficult. I mean, I think of abuse, I think of rape, I think of terrible things. But we have a Father in, in heaven who is so in love with us. He's so in love with us. He wants to spend eternity with us, and he, he, he can't wait. He went to prepare the house now, 2,000 years ago. You know the Galilean wedding? He went to prepare the house right away. He didn't say, I'm going and I'll get to it when I get to it. I am God, you know. He didn't say that. He says, I go to prepare mansions, houses for you. And the idea is if, if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. I go to prepare a place that where I am, you will be. Because I love you and I want to be with you. I don't care how bad your circumstance is. I don't care how bad things get on this earth. Isaiah 5, evil being called good and good evil. We have a God in heaven who is sovereign, who is in complete control, who's still on the throne, who's madly in love with you and I. And we're going to go be with him soon and very soon. When I think of that, this is the greatest Christmas ever. I have been given the greatest gift, and you have been given the greatest gift from God. 
And all he wants us to do is enjoy it. He doesn't want us to come to the supper and turn around and walk out and stand in the driveway. He wants us to come in and sup with him. Because our circumstances change, but our God never does. Hallelujah. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. I'm encouraged. I pray you're all strengthened and encouraged tonight. I can't wait to what the Lord shares tomorrow, what he puts on, on my heart, what he shares from his word tomorrow for us. I can't wait to see the children in sweet innocence and purity sing unto a holy God, regardless of all these things that are going on. Because you know what? We're not going to remember it. Ellen, who's in heaven, 90 years old, she's with Jesus right now. Friends, she's not looking down, wondering how we're doing. She's dancing with Jesus because she left us for a better man. And we all know it. This is why we rejoice. He says, again, I say unto you, what? Rejoice. Father, we thank you. Lord, as you've just overheard, we Lord, we're madly in love with you. We believe every jot and tittle of your word, Lord. We are excited and expectant, and we are looking for your soon coming, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. As you taught the early church to pray, Maranatha. Lord, they would say, Maranatha, Maranatha. Jesus, Maranatha, we pray, Lord. Come. Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation. Lord, we pray that many more will receive this gift. You've given a gift, and people are leaving the present at the table, Lord. God, use us, hands and feet, to bring the present to them, Lord, to help them unwrap it and receive it and rejoice. Jesus, may your perfect peace be on your people here tonight. May you bless them and keep them, Lord. Let your face so shine upon them, your perfect countenance, your love and your joy. Lord, bless your holy people, for you are, your, you are our God and we are your children. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Merry Christmas, Lord. We love you, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed. Amen. Before you walk out of here tonight, you better make sure you let somebody know you love them. Amen. God bless you. I love you.